Man, that was so good. I love Johnny so much when he does stuff like that. Every, every once in a while, people ask me, who, who are the people on the elder board of Crosswinds Church? That guy's one of them right there. So, well, a few weeks ago, I had an interesting experience I kind of want to tell you about this morning. Um, I have been a part of a program for the last 18 months, myself and about 15 other leaders. Uh, we are training in contemplative, meditative practices that are not a part of the everyday person's lifestyle. Uh, certain methods of prayer, certain approaches to reading the Bible. It's been good, uh, you know, a little hippy-dippy if you want to know the truth, but uh, I can manage that. And uh, two weeks ago, our group went together to a Jesuit retreat center to spend four days on a silent retreat. Now, let me be very honest with you. This silent retreat was about as easy as silent retreats get. Uh, I was not entirely alone. I had about 20 other people there. Uh, as much as there were long periods of silence, there were also long periods of hanging out. Uh, there was teaching going on, so we had something to think about when we go be silent. There was artwork you could go look at and focus on. Uh, most significantly, it was easy because I had my car with me, and every morning I would drive 10 minutes to a Starbucks. I'll be honest with you about that. Uh, the monastic lifestyle is not what it used to be. What I will tell you is the hardest part of the silent retreat was when they told us that at our upcoming lunch, we would eat together in total silence. See, the entire four days, we had breakfast, lunch, dinner together, all these meals, and the entire four days, we would sit around our tables, six people to a table, having wonderful conversation. Uh, the meals were my favorite part of the retreat. Not because the food was good. The food was so not good. <laughs> the meals were my favorite part because that's when we get to talk and we'd get to laugh and that's when we could take a break from our studies. But now they were telling us that this next meal we would sit in absolute silence. I immediately started dreading it. Uh, they explained that the silent meal was going to be a wonderful opportunity for us to focus on God. And the silence would enhance the rest of our senses. The food, the delicious food we were about to eat would come alive in whole new ways. They encouraged us, as you take a bite, close your eyes and just taste the food like you've never tasted food before. And so we went to lunch. I think probably most of us dreading it. In fact, there were a few other people there from our Crosswinds team. One was our associate pastor, Jody Tay. She was also dreading it, so much so, both of us stayed out of the cafeteria as long as we could, stalling before we went in to minimize our time in this experience. But I finally went in, I found a table, I put my stuff down, and I got ready to see what God would say in the silence. Um, I walked up to the buffet, I grabbed a plate, and I don't mind telling you, I was excited to see what gourmet food would come alive in new ways and wake up my senses. And when I got to the buffet, what I found was a bin of green salad, the same salad we had had at lunch and dinner the two previous days with the one dressing that they would offer every single meal, Italian. They had salad and tater tots. Good old pre-frozen, warmed up in an oven, lukewarm by the time they get to your plate, soggy tater tots. And for the main dish, fish cakes. 
Not crab cakes, fish cakes. I don't know if you know what a fish cake is. It is ground up fish formed in a burger-like patty, usually leftover fish from like a three-day-ago meal, mashed together with some other unrecognizable things into a patty-like form, fried up a little bit in a pan, and then dropped on your plate. Oh, and smothered in some kind of sauce. I have no idea what it was. Uh, I took the salad that I'd already eaten four times. I took some tater tots. I opted out of the fish cakes. And I sat down at a table with five other people in total silence. I looked at the people around me. I, I watched them try to turn tater tots into a spiritual experience. <laughs> Not talking was awkward. If you come from a family like mine, the whole point of eating is to talk with each other. I'm Italian, that's what you do when you eat. You get loud and boisterous. <laughs> Silence is a punishment. Um, you know when you were a kid, your, your punishment might be to sit in a chair in a corner and not talk, somebody might make you do it. It felt like we were all having to do that, like we did something bad and now we were not allowed to talk. Or it felt like we were playing that game where when you were a kid on a road trip, your parents would say, the first one to make a noise loses. Did you ever play that? Or, or it, felt, it felt like we were in an argument. Um, you ever been in an argument with someone and as long as you keep talking, you know that some progress is being made, but when that other person gets silent, you know, I went too far. It's getting bad, they're angry. You guys, in my head, I started making up a conversation with the person next to me. I knew that she had just gotten back from Las Vegas, and in my head, this is not out loud, in my head, I said, Pam, I know you were in Vegas with your family a few weeks ago. How was your trip? And in my head, she said, it was good, Chris. And in my head, I said, where did you stay? And in my head, she said, the Venetian. And I said, did you see any shows while you were in town? None of this happened. It was all just going on in my head. And I finished my tater tots and my salad, which by the way, let me save you some time trying this yourself. They taste the same when you eat them in silence as they do when you're talking to someone. I finished my food and I got the heck out of there. A few days later, I was at home telling my daughter about this experience, the worst meal of my life. Kennedy is 15. And I told her, Kennedy, you're never going to believe this. We had to eat an entire meal at a table with five other people in absolute silence. She said, you couldn't say a word? I said, not a word. She said, not even please pass the salt. I said, at most you could motion for the salt. And it was then that she said the most revealing thing to me about the state of our world. This might actually be the most important thing I got out of this silent lunch. You ready for this? I said, Kennedy, we were not allowed to talk. And she said, but you were allowed to use your phones, right? <laughs> How fascinating that in 2023, when we think about a silent retreat, getting away from all the, the fury and the noise, how fascinating to me that I would find a way to get to Starbucks three times, and my daughter assumes we can use our phones. Today, as we finish up this series, Up All Night, I wanna talk to you about one other thing that I think that God might want you to know today, and it, and it has to do with this thing that can keep us up that is probably sitting in your pocket right now, our phones, or our screens, or really, our technology. In fact, this would be a good time to make sure your cell phone is on vibrate, because of all the sermons for your phone to start ringing, it's not today, trust me. I think whether you know it or not, your tech is doing a number on your soul. Okay, more on that in a minute, because before I convince you of that, I need to just, 
I need to sing the praises of tech. After all, many of you work in the tech sector. <laughs> many of you make the device that's in my pocket right now or the apps that are on it or, or you do something related to the IT industry and how wonderful it is that we have these things, right? Um, I was thinking the other day about what a pain life used to be when I did not have a smartphone. Uh, for example, does anybody know what this is a page from? <laughs> does anybody know? You can yell it out. A Thomas guide, Thomas guide. Many of you remember, some of you don't know these, but before smartphones, if you ever had to go someplace you had never been, you had to have a 300 page spiral bound book in your car. Look up where you were going in the index. It would tell you what page you would find that location on and what square in the grid it would be. And then you would have to take like 10 minutes to write out how you were going to go from page 235 to page 135 and then west to page 56. Or you did it while you were driving. Thank God that we have Maps apps, right? And we used to have address books. Uh, if I wanted to call you or write you a letter because there was no email, I had to have an address book. Or if I had a desk, maybe a Rolodex with little cards in it where I could write down all your information. I put them in alphabetical order and, and there was no cloud to save it in. If you lost that, you had to start all over. And even meeting somebody somewhere was incredibly complicated. Um, if I was supposed to meet you at a park and you were on the other side of the park and I didn't know exactly where you were, we might spend 20 minutes walking around the park missing each other, wondering if the other person was there, wondering if you went looking for them on the other side, that person happened to arrive on your side, but they weren't there to see you there. They left, basically. Does some of you remember? Thank God for technology. But here's a question. Has it become so pervasive in our lives that it does as much harm as it does good? Is there something about our tech that might be keeping us up at night? A few years back, researchers from the University of Missouri, they wanted to know how people behaved when they were separated from their smartphones. So they recruited 208 students for a survey on media usage. That's what they told them it was about, media usage. And uh, they narrowed it down to 41 people who had a fair amount of media usage specifically on their phones. What they did next is they'd, they'd put a person in a cubicle and they would ask them to do a word search puzzle. You've all done a word search before, right? And they would measure their anxiety levels their heart rate, their blood pressure, as they did the word search with their phone in their pocket. And then the real experiment began. The researchers told the participants that their phones were causing interference with the blood pressure cuff, and they asked them to move their phones. So a person's phone would be placed in a cubicle that was close by, and the person would go back to working on their word search, but this time something would happen the researchers would call the person's phone and the participant would hear it ringing a few cubicles over, unable to go pick it up. All right, what do you think happened when people were separated from their phones? What do you think happened when they were separated and they knew that they were missing a call? The results changed dramatically. Not only did people do worse on the puzzle, but while their phones were off limits, their anxiety levels, their blood pressure, their heart rate skyrocketed. One of the researchers concluded this, smartphones, they're capable of becoming an extension of selves, such as that when separated, we experience a lessing of self in a negative physiological state. I am struck by that phrase, lessing of self. 
Could the addition of some technology into your life, great as it may be, could it make you lose you? Or part of you? Or may, maybe even keep a part of you from being activated because, well, your phone, your tablet, your TV, your computer is keeping something in you dormant. Um, I don't know if you've gone to a concert or a game of any sort in the last 20 years, but there's an interesting phenomenon I've noticed. People pulling out their phones to record what's happening in front of them. Um, last year, I had the fortune of going to a Golden State Warriors game, and at one point I looked around and, and I watched as hundreds of people recorded Steph Curry shooting a free throw. Uh, hundreds of people with their cell phones out, not watching Steph Curry, but watching their cell phone screen while their camera watched Steph Curry. Um, I'll admit I've done that myself, but you know how many times I've ever looked at any video I've taken at a sporting event? Zero, zero times. Because as good as my camera is and as good as my seat might be, there's a much better video of Steph shooting a free throw on my DVR at home. Um, you see this at concerts. This summer, Taylor Swift on her latest tour, tickets on the resale market went for anywhere from $800 to $11,000. Um, if you had enough money to buy a ticket to be this close to Taylor Swift, you spent a lot of money. All right, imagine spending that money to look at your screen. Look, I'm, I'm a fan of technology. I, I believe we can't reject it. We shouldn't demonize it. We should not blame it for what's wrong in this world. It's a tool. It's simply a tool. Um, hundreds of you are watching online right now or you will be later this week. And what a wonderful tool that we get to do this. In, in fact, can I say today, technology can be redeemed for the glory of God and for your good and for the good of other people. Let me be really clear. I'm not going to tell you today that your things or your smart things are bad. But what if in them you lose even a bit of yourself? They cause a lessening of self. In fact, let me ask it this way. What if the way that your tech keeps you up is that it steals some of your freedom? There's this moment in 1 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of people who've discovered that they are free in Christ. That's a very unique concept at their time because freedom was not something that one thought of when they thought of religion. Even today, freedom's not something most people think of when they think of religion. They think of rules and regulations and do's and don'ts. In fact, let's be honest, most people who don't go to church, and many who do, think that the reason they go is to get a list of rules from their pastor, who's hopefully getting them from the Bible. Anyway, the, the people that Paul's writing to have discovered a freedom in Jesus. It's, it's a freedom from the laws and the rules of religion, and they have gotten involved because of that freedom in doing all sorts of things that they should not be doing. What I mean by not be doing is that, that these things are no longer against the rules, but they are damaging to them. And the people in Corinth have been talked to about these damaging things by Paul and by their leaders, and their excuse is, I have the right to do anything. I am free. Remember, Jesus' death on the cross set me free from the law. I have the right. And so Paul says this, you say I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. You say, I have the right to do anything, but come on, people, you don't want that anything to master you. In other words, 
don't you realize that the thing that you're free to do can also become the thing that enslaves you again? That becomes your master? I wonder if our phones, our technology, free as we are to use them, I wonder if we let them master us. Do you know that 64% of car accidents are caused by distracted driving? 64% of accidents have to do with not being able to free our focus from our tech. Did you know that today the average student can focus on a given task for only two minutes? The typical online user's screen focus lasts an average of 40 seconds. The average 25 to 34 year old spends two and a half hours on social media per day. You ready for this? The average eight to 18 year old spends nine hours on social media per day. We touch, swipe, tap our screens an average of 2,617 times per day. When we talk about part of us being mastered, would you say that maybe those statistics reveal that these things may master our thoughts? Let me ask you this. Have you ever been online? Have you ever been online and you found yourself reading the same paragraph over and over again and not remembering anything that was said in the paragraph it's as if your attention is on something, but your attention is not on that thing. Have you ever been surfing the internet and you go on a deep dive following a link in a page where you read about something that links to another page and then that page links to another and before you know it, you are 10 links deep and you don't remember how you got there or what you were originally focused on? Um, have you ever picked up your phone or tablet to call someone or text someone, and when you opened your screen, it's still on the last thing you were on, a game or a YouTube video or a social media app, something like that, and you immediately jump back into the game or whatever, and then a few minutes later, you put your phone down, forgetting to make the phone call that you, you picked up your phone to make in the first place. If our phones master our thoughts, could we also say that, that maybe our devices master our attention? One more way they master you, they master your emotions. The National Survey on Drug and Health Use screens adolescents ages 12 to 17 is what we're talking about. And they found that twice as many girls in 2019 versus 2009, 10 years earlier, twice as many girls had clinical level depression. Twice as many 12 to 17 year old girls were depressed and 74% more teen boys. Why? Why was 2019 different than 2009? It was not COVID, this was pre-pandemic. Why the rise in teen depression? Was it the economy? Absolutely not, the economy was improving between 2009 and 2019. Was it rising depression due to academic pressure? Well, how do you measure that? Okay, one way to measure it is homework time. Guess what, in that 10 years, Homework time didn't change. It was actually down with eighth graders. What changed? What changed in teens' lives over that time period that depression would increase so much, all right? In 2009, only half of them used social media every day. By 2019, 85%. In 2009, most teens did not own a smartphone. By 2019, 95% did. 95%. It is not just that these two trends happened at the same time. Is it possible that our devices don't just master our thoughts and our attention, but they can master our emotions? And not just teenagers, but yours. I have a right to do anything. I'm free to do what I want. Paul says, not everything's beneficial, though. 
I have a right. But Paul says, I will not be mastered by anything. And, and I think one of the things that keeps you up is that your thoughts and your attention and your emotions might be controlled by something else. Let me share with you some truths from scripture to help you put down your phone. And, and more important, regain the part of you that might be getting lost because of your tech. The first one, the first one. You are most you when you have face-to-face -face interaction with another person. You are most you when you are talking with someone and looking them in their eye. And just to make sure that we do that today, turn to the person next to you, look them in the eye and say, you are most you when you are face-to-face -face with another person. Look each other in the eye when you say it. Jackie Reese, if you were here last week, she spoke about, uh, she did a great job talking about this passage we read in Genesis where God says to Adam, it is not good for a human to be alone. You remember she talked about her tattoo with, you were created to be with other people. Now, how great that in 2023, you can look someone in the eye and have face-to-face -face interaction over Zoom over FaceTime. It is world changing. Our technology lets us do this. But I must also say, you were made to do this, not this, right? It's not to say you can't do this too, but you were made to do this. It's part of your wiring. It's part of your design. And if you choose this over this, then you will lose part of yourself. You are most you when you are face-to-face -face interacting with another person. Now, here's the great thing. You can go online and you can download a dating app and you can meet another person and you can go to dinner and it will help. The app will help you being able to have done this. Um, you can go to our website and you can find out about meetups and small groups and, and then show up at one and this will help you with this. You can go to dinner with your husband or your wife or your significant other or your kid and you can pull up a list of questions to ask each other over dinner that will help you discover whole new parts of each other and your phone can help with this. What do we say? Devices are redeemable tools when they're used for the glory of God and for your good and for the good of others. But when this takes away from this, you lose part of how God created you. There is a lessening of self. So let me spin this into a positive. To recover you, to regain the self that you've lost to your devices, it's as easy as more of this and less of this. Okay, the second truth comes out of one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. I'll, I'll tell it to you fast, all right? We find it in 1 Samuel. Um, there's this boy, Samuel, whose mom believed her son was to be given over to God, to a life with God. God had purposes for him, and, and she brought him to live with Eli, who was a priest and a judge for Israel. And one night, Samuel heard something calling out, Samuel, and he said, here I am. Nothing happened. So he ran down the hallway into Eli's room, and he said, well, you called me. Here I am. And Eli said, my son, I did not call you. Go back to sleep. And Samuel goes to bed, but he hears it again. Samuel! And he runs back to Eli. I'm here! Eli says, it wasn't me. Stop waking me up. Samuel goes back to bed, but a third time in the middle of the night, he hears, Samuel! 
And he runs into Eli's room, and it's at this point that Eli realizes, oh, this is God calling to Samuel. And so Eli told Samuel, take a look, go and lie down. And if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Okay, let me spoil the ending for you. It was God. He had a message for Samuel. You know what the message was about? A future for Samuel, a plan for Samuel. And do you know why Samuel finally heard? Because he was listening. He was lying in bed in the middle of the night, and rather than a TV or a podcast or music or a white noise machine or an ASMR YouTube video, he sat in the silence and just listened. And I'm not trying to shame you if you need noise to go to sleep. I need noise. I'm one of those people. But here's the truth. Here's the truth. If you hear nothing else today, hear this. You will become aware of God's voice, primarily in the gaps. Let me say that again. You will become aware of God's voice most frequently in the gaps. I'm not saying God doesn't speak in the chaos. I'm not saying he won't hit you over the head with something. But more often than not, if you're going to hear God, it's going to be because you allowed a gap. And let, let me just be as direct as I know how to be. If you're under 40, please hear this. If you're a teenager in here, please hear this. It is very possible that you have never known a world with gaps, empty space. And I'm, I'm speaking to you right now, those of you who feel like you never hear God's voice, why doesn't he talk to me? And when I say that, I don't mean audibly, I just mean that you never have a sense that God is saying anything to you, speaking to you. You never feel prompted by the Holy Spirit to do anything. You never feel convicted about things you do wrong. You think God might be telling you to go make right. You never feel stirred by God, inspired by God, challenged by God. I promise you he is doing all of that and more in your life. He is calling out your name, Samuel, and you will not hear it if you don't create gaps or just leave gaps, just leave them. You will find and recognize and hear God in the gaps. I'm, I'm gonna make up two stories, all right? You tell me which one of these is more realistic. One day, King David in the Bible went to oil changers to get his oil changed. And they told him it was gonna be half an hour, and so he pulled out his phone and he played Candy Crush. And then he checked his email, and then he texted a few friends, and all of a sudden, the Spirit of God swelled in him, and he sensed God like never before, and he wrote Psalm 8, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory in the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? Is that realistic, or is this story more likely? King David pulls into oil changers. They tell him it's going to be half an hour. He says, I'm going for a walk. I'll be back in 30 minutes. And he sees the sun setting in the great distance and the full moon rising behind him, and he looks up at the stars that are just kind of breaking, and he, he senses God as creator, but also recognizes in this moment that as aware as he is of God, somehow God is aware of him, and he says, 
Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory in the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you set in place, who am I that you would be mindful of me, human beings, that you would be aware of us? The second truth, God makes us aware of his voice in the gaps. When was the last time you just let a gap be a gap? When I say that, I don't mean a silent lunch with terrible fish cakes. I just mean space, silence. Now, warning, if you decide to try this, just if you try to just let a gap be a gap, you may find you are greatly distracted by all the thoughts that are spinning through your head. And I need to tell you, that is okay. Can I confess to you, I have thoughts spinning through my head that have their own thoughts spinning through their head. My thoughts have thoughts. But guess what? God can speak to you through your thoughts. In fact, almost every, can I just let you in on a little pastoral secret? Almost everyone I know who says God spoke to them, what they're really saying is, I got a thought, and I think it's from God. That's what they really mean. And here's what you do with your thoughts. You ready? Pay attention to them and see what emotions they stir in you. See what emotions they stir. When you feel that emotion after a thought, whether it's sad, angry, scared, happy, excited, tender, stop and focus on that emotion. And that right there where that emotion is, is very likely where God is trying to tell you something. All right. One last truth, a third one, to help you regain the part of yourself you may have lost to your device, all right? I already told you, you'll hear God in the gaps. I told you, you were made for this, but there is another thing that you were made for, and I don't know if our technology allows us to feel this anymore. Listen to Philippians 3.20. Paul writes this, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you belong in heaven, and you are eagerly awaiting, like you are longing for heaven. In another letter, he says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. I think what Paul is saying here is that you were made in you. There is this thing that is longing for heaven. Would you say longing for heaven with me? Longing for heaven. And you know what it feels like? I want to tell you what that feels like. Now, when I say longing for heaven, you might think it's someone who just, it's like singing worship songs all day and they can't put their Bible down, and they talk about heaven with everyone they meet, and they draw pictures of what they think heaven will be like, and they are so excited for what heaven is going to be, and I'm pretty sure those things are not what a longing for heaven is for, is, is like. Do you know what a longing for heaven is? I promise you've experienced it. Every single person in this room, everyone who can hear my voice right now, do you know what a longing for heaven is? It is boredom. It's when you think, oh my gosh, I am so bored. That's a longing for heaven. Oh my gosh, there's nothing to do. That is a longing for heaven. When is this guy going to finish his sermon? That is a longing for heaven. <laughs> that is your soul saying, there's got to be something more. 
There's got to be something better out there. And I don't, I don't just mean that in existential moments, the big faith there's got to be more feelings. I mean, even the small ones, the everyday boredom. I am bored with this show. There's got to be something better on TV. That is actually a longing for heaven. There's got to be more in the fridge. That is a longing for heaven. There's got to be something more interesting to do with my day-to-day. When you feel that, when you feel boredom, what you need to know, it is an invitation from God to take time with him. Your boredom is actually a gift from God that is meant to draw you to him, and you miss the invitation because you thought your boredom was an invitation to change a channel or open up another app. Every moment of potential boredom in our lives can now be avoided by the microcomputer in our pocket or the slightly larger one that's sitting on your desk or the one with six streaming services that's hanging on your wall or the one that comes built into your car with so many satellite stations to choose from or podcasts to listen to. And while all of that is good, I love all those things, They're good in that they're redeemable when used for the glory of God and the good of others and the good of you. I wonder if you might lose yourself in them. But even more, I wonder if you might find a part of you that you've lost or maybe maybe even a part of you you've never discovered if you saw your boredom as an invitation to take time with God, to long for heaven and to look for him. These wonderful inventions have the tendency to master our thoughts and our attention and our emotions. Do you know how easy it is to be free? It's as simple as putting it down. That's all it takes. I want to challenge you to do something this week. One hour a day with no tech whatsoever. One hour a day where you give yourself a gap. One hour a day where you let yourself be bored. If you're sitting here hearing me say that going, no problem, one hour a day, I can do that in my sleep. Your sleep doesn't count. You can't count that hour. (laughs) Actually, if you're sitting here and you're going, I do an hour. I mean, I'm sitting here right now. I haven't pulled out my phone. Okay, two hours. (laughs) If you do two, try three. Maybe you'll get out a guitar. Maybe you'll go for a walk with no earbuds. You cannot have your earbuds if you're on your walk. Maybe you'll just sit on your front porch and you'll watch your neighborhood go by. You notice, if you've ever been a walk in your neighborhood and you see someone on the porch, how strange that feels and you, you think you're watching an Andy Griffith episode or something and you, you wonder, did people used to do this long ago? What if you tried that? Maybe, maybe one hour without tech, you will sit across from someone eye to eye and you will interact with these and not your phone. What I promise you will do, I promise you will regain some part of you that has been lessened. And there's a really good chance that God will make you aware of him. Being free is as simple as putting it down. All right, I kind of want to end there today. I don't want to pray. I think this sermon is a prayer. Let's let ourselves leave knowing being free is as simple as putting it down. Thanks for coming today. We'll see you next week.